0: Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samir Keynes, the U.S. economics and trade editor for The Economist.
1: And I'm Chad Bown, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics.
0: In this episode, we're going to talk about the so-called immigration crisis. This wasn't a trade issue until President Donald Trump made it one, when he threatened tariffs unless the Mexicans could fix it.
1: Last episode, we talked about the economic implications of what happened on May 30th, or the night of the tweet, as we're going to call it. President Trump announced his plan to declare a state of national emergency and apply tariffs of 5% on all imports from Mexico. Unless the Mexicans somehow control immigration flows, those 5% tariffs would hit $350 billion of trade, and they would rise to 25% by October 1st.
0: In response, a bunch of Mexican politicians hot-footed it to Washington DC to meet with the Trump administration. As we record this, they are still in those meetings. One of them was Graciela Marquez, Mexico's current Minister of the Economy. And while she was in town, Chad had the chance to catch up with her.
1: I asked Graciela about her reaction to President Trump's sudden tweet.
0: So my reaction to the tweet was a, a late reaction because it was at the very moment in which we were presenting the USMCA to the Mexican Senate. So we were there without phones and we were in a ceremony, a very important ceremony, because se- Mexican senators were excited to receive the text for the ratification. After we left the room, there was some uh, journalists asking us uh, what are you uh, what what do you think about the ratification? Is it go is it is going to be successful? And I said yes, of course. I uh, jumped into my car, opened my my phone, and then there it was. There it was. We mentioned last episode that we had spoken to Gordon Hansen about what's been going on at the US-Mexico border, and that we will be sharing our conversation with him. So This episode is that. As a reminder, Gordon is the Pacific Economic Cooperation Chair in International Relations at the University of California, San Diego. Gordon will be known to a lot of Trade Talks listeners as one of the world's best international trade economists. You may have heard about the China shock literature, or to Doran Hansen. He's the Hansen.
1: But Gordon is also one of the world's top scholars on the Mexican economy, as well as on the economics of migration. Before we get started, though, a quick warning. This episode isn't really for the faint of heart. Normally we talk about things like tariffs and soybeans or steel, but this episode is about some really terrible things happening to people.
0: With that, let us begin. First of all, we wanted to know about the history of illegal immigration into the U.S. or undocumented migrants crossing the U.S.'s southern border from Mexico.
2: So the history of undocumented immigration from Mexico to the United States really begins in the 1960s when the U.S. terminated a temporary agricultural worker program called the Bracero Program. That ended in 1965. Not a lot happened right away, but over time, as Mexico's population continued to grow and Mexico experienced a couple of decades of severe financial instability associated with currency crises, a couple of quite extreme recessions, The flow of of labor across the border increased, picked up in the 1970s, picked up more in the 1980s, until by the late 80s, you had around 5 million undocumented individuals from Mexico living in the United States.
1: So what was happening with enforcement?
2: The first official policy response to that was the Immigration Reform and Control Act in 1986. That had two pieces to it. One was a legalization process, which ultimately granted a, around 2.7 million visas to individuals who had entered the United States without documentation at some previous moment in time, the vast majority of whom were from Mexico, and then also increased restrictions on illegal entry through increased enforcement, increased penalties on employers, and was in, by intention going to put a new enforcement regime into place. As it worked out, the legalization happened, but the enforcement piece really didn't. And so enforcement didn't start to pick up until the late 90s and early 2000s and really didn't pick up until after 9-11.
0: Weren't there sanctions or some kind of uh, criminal penalty before?
2: The answer to that is no. Until 2007, the vast majority of folks who were apprehended at the border, trying to cross illegally, were subject to voluntary return. And that meant there was no record of their attempted illegal entry. Uh, their fingerprints were logged, were logged. So we did have, we had a, a physical record, but there was no legal or, or criminal response. And they were uh, bused back across the border and could try again later that afternoon, the following day or, or the next week. In the late 2000s, around 2007, 2009, the Border Patrol began to change that and then began to impose criminal and legal sanctions against people who had been caught coming into the country illegally. And that meant that you now have a criminal record of your action that complicates applying for a legal entry visa in the future, it uh, it means that you could face stiffer penalties, even jail time, if you're caught on another attempt, or if you were caught in the U.S. interior having crossed successfully and uh, are subject to a traffic stop or or picked up for having being suspected of criminal activity of some kind. So those three big pieces of of enforcement response, which took you know a good fifteen years to implement, meant that by the time we're You know, around 2014, 2015, the border's a pretty quiet place. Apprehensions of Mexican nationals trying to cross the border uh, illegally are down from about 1.6 million a year in 2000 to 160,000 a year in around 2014, 2015. So the recent uptick in apprehensions is something that is quite distinct from the last 30 years of history that we've gone through. It's not about immigration from Mexico, nor is it about single adults, mostly males, though increasingly females in in recent decades, coming across to work. The recent uptick is is due in large part to individuals from Central America uh, and to family units from Central America seeking asylum.
1: So why? Why are these families from countries in Central America, south of Mexico, why are they seeking asylum in the U.S.?
2: I would see two factors behind the recent uptick in attempted illegal immigration from from Central America. One is a set of push factors that have are associated with just the misery that the region is experiencing in Guatemala, Salvador, and uh, Honduras. What we've seen is a sharp increase in physical inse- insecurity of people living in the country, associated with rampaging drug gangs. Those gangs got their origins in the United States, of all places, as during the explosion in retail drug trade in places like Los Angeles and Chicago and New York and Miami in the 1980s. Those were There were uh, immigrants from Central America living in those cities. Some of the kids of those immigrants got involved in these drug gangs. When they were then picked up by the police for infractions of one kind or another and then deported to their countries, they had, in effect, gone to an elite college for drug trafficking in the United States. They, they'd worked in, in some of the most sophisticated street-level criminal organizations in the world, and then they'd gone to prison and had yet another level to that education, and then are deported back to countries that were wholly unprepared to deal with that sort of sophisticated criminal organization. When Central America ended its couple of decades of civil conflict, and you had lots of individuals decommissioned from military activity, both either from the military or from the rebel side and lots of weapons running around, that created a fertile ground for recruitment for for young men to then get involved in this expanding criminal enterprise. The second piece that played a role in the explosion in criminal violence in Mexico was drug gangs in Mexico which control the transshipment of cocaine from the from South America into the United States, moving operations into Mexico in order to secure the the transshipment of drugs, which becomes increasingly concentrated as governments in both the U.S. and Mexico at, uh, attempt to to shut down that trade.
0: Okay, so so there are increases in criminal gang activity and and drugs in both Central America and Mexico. How does that end up affecting the, the flow of migrants?
2: So the combination of those two events meant that you have countries that are that are weak states to begin with, they're coming off of a couple of decades of civil conflict, they're new and tender democracies, and all of a sudden you have a couple different types of, uh, of very dangerous and very sophisticated criminal organizations expanding their operations. The result has been spikes in homicide rates, which made either Honduras or El Salvador, the most dangerous country in the world that in, in most of the last six or eight years and has led to physical insecurity in the major cities in those countries. And that means if you're living in your, what would be a working class neighborhood in San Pedro Sula in Honduras or in San Salvador in El Salvador, you're going to likely have to pay a tax just to enter or leave your neighborhood. If you have a business, you're going to pay a tax to local drug gangs. You're likely going to know people who were caught up in violence or extortion or or kidnapping. And so that environment has created strong pressures for folks to leave. It's not just about Uh, low levels of income. It's about uh, sharp increases in physical uh, insecurity.
1: Going beyond the violence and physical insecurity, pushing people out of their homes, are there any U.S. policies that affected these migration pressures?
2: Well, had this spike in attempted illegal entry occurred 10 years ago, it would have been in a different enforcement regime where most of the individuals coming across would have been young men, and, and young men from Central America did enter the U.S. during that time period. They would have crossed as as undocumented immigrants had for decades, and that is by trying to evade the border patrol, get to the U.S., get established, earn some money so that they can then pay to have their wives or other uh, or children or other family members join them. It has been, until recently, very dangerous for Central Americans to cross Mexico to get to the United States almost guaranteeing, if you're a man, physical assault and robbery, and almost guaranteeing, if you're a woman, sexual assault or attempted sexual assault. Now, things changed uh, with the the Trump administration in a couple of ways. One is this continued uh, increase in border enforcement, and that is not unique to the Trump administration. It was begun, begun by uh, President George Bush, continued by President Obama, And Donald Trump has just continued to expand that border enforcement presence. But what that meant is that the usual illegal route was no longer really available. And so if you wanted to get into the country, the only hope you had was to seek uh, asylum. Very few of the folks apprehended at the border had been seeking asylum in previous decades a tiny fraction of mexican nationals apprehended would seek uh, asylum it just wasn't considered a viable option because the us hadn't treated it as an option but once we shut down what what was for decades kind of the normal route of illegal entry uh, asylum became the only option or not the only option but almost the only option and in order to increase your chances at asylum, the, the view on the street in Central America is that it's better to come uh, as a family unit. And and that's in part because you're making a more compelling case that you're in physical danger. And that's in part because of U.S. regulations about how you treat family members. And, and so the, the perverse response to U.S. enforcement actions is actually to increase the incentive of folks coming from Central America to seek the asylum option, which is is in part responsible for overwhelming the current system.
0: So the American crackdown on enforcement had the unintended effect of pushing people and families towards claiming asylum. Fine. Let's talk about Mexico now. What was their immigration policy during this period?
2: So for a long time, Mexico didn't have much of an official policy. The laws on the books, and these go back decades, part of which going back to Mexico's constitution in the 1920s and then some laws regarding uh, regulating population matters in the 1940s, gave local officials a fair amount of discretion in terms of what to do with foreign nationals who were in the country without authorization. That discretion led not surprisingly, uh, to rampant abuse of the Central American immigrants who were encountered. So what you had until very recently was uh, Central American migrants running the gauntlet uh, in Mexico coming with enough money to pay bribes to get partway through the country. Once they ran out of money, then they would seek a wire transfer to get more money to get to the border. And then once they got to the border, they need yet more money to hire a smuggler to get in to the United States. But some things happened in Mexico in the 2000s that changed the attitude of the country towards immigrants coming from Central America. The irony is that the U.S. having a migration problem on its southern border became Mexico's reality now with having a migration problem on its southern border with immigrants from throughout Central America entering Mexico through Guatemala. As the scale of of Central American migration steadily increased in the 2000s, the abuse of those individuals became more apparent. Then there was a horrific event in in the late 2000s in which a mass grave was discovered in the state of Tamaulipas just across from Brownsville in, in Texas where the bodies of 73 migrants were discovered. And after authorities pieced together the story, what they found was that these were Central American migrants trying to get to the United States. They were kidnapped by Mexican drug gangs who often control a fair amount of the human smuggling that goes on across the border. They held them in detention when no ransom was paid. They slaughtered them and they buried them. And once, though, that mass grave was discovered, what became apparent is that it was not at all a unique episode. There was rampant abuse of individuals along the border.
0: That sounds really bad. Uh... What did Mexico do? How, how did its policy respond?
2: So what the, what President Calderon did uh, in the late 2000s was to pass, help pass a new law in which changed the, the treatment of immigrants coming into the country from Central America, making it possible for Mexico to grant the equivalent of of a temporary waiver, that you're allowed to be in the country without an official visa for a certain amount of time. You might be in transit, you might be sinking some temporary work, but it was removing that discretion that had led to abuse uh, in previous generations. Now, Mexico's new president, Andrés Manuel López Obrador, has used that provision much more extensively than previous governments have. And so what he's making possible is for people coming from Central America to seek this temporary permission, which essentially gives you transit through the country. So you're not if you're a Central American migrant, you aren't worried about getting discovered at traffic checkpoints by police who are then going to last, uh, ask for bribes. You can work your way through the country. And that helped uh, abet the strategy of traveling in caravans because you're not worrying about getting discovered. You're worried about the criminal gangs harassing you. And in caravans, the sense is you're going to be safer. So the humanitarian response of Mexico to the crisis, uh, the, the immigration issues on its southern border And the U.S. response have combined in an unexpected way to create what is now something we've never seen on the southern border before, which is tens of thousands of people seeking asylum. And that's not at all what our infrastructure on the border is set up for. It's set up to process largely young, able-bodied individuals who are caught on a a one-on-one or small group basis, processed and quickly uh, sent home.
0: This really does sound like a policy nightmare. Uh, I mean, I can see why the Mexicans did what they did. You need to protect people who are vulnerable to gangs. Might not make sense to have people claim asylum somewhere where they're still going to be unsafe. But from the US's perspective, I can can also see how it, it looks like the Mexicans were kind of passing on the problem to them. So on May 31st, President Trump tweeted that Mexico can easily fix this problem. Time for them to finally do what must be done. So, Gordon, is there an easy way for Mexico to fix the problem and, and stop the flow of migrants?
2: It would be easy to stop it in in a material sense because the flows of migrants coming from Mexico, coming from Central America through Mexico to the U.S. are... They're now easy to spot because they're traveling in groups. These are families, so they they aren't super mobile. They are highly exposed to to discovery, but it wouldn't be easy to stop legally. It it's not immediately apparent to be. Me. I'm mean, no by by no means an expert in Mexican immigration law. Far from it. But it's not immediately clear that there are legal provisions that would allow Mexico to intervene. You would they would have to declare. That this represents some sort of security crisis for Mexico and because of the way that the flow of border by, by grouping families into caravans what you've done is to make you to reduce the security problem uh, on the Mexican side and many of these individuals are now complying with Mexican law by seeking uh, these temporary permissions to be in the country. So from Mexico's perspective these folks are kind of doing everything right. So Given laws and and procedures that are currently on the books, the the easy part is, is not readily apparent to me.
1: It seems to me that the risk is that you tackle the symptoms of a problem, but not the underlying cause. Do we know anything about how to deal with the roots of this problem? Well,
2: think about what we have done collectively as a group of nations when we've confronted major crises in the past. And there have been a multitude of them. There was the the conflicts at the height of the Cold War, the the last height of the Cold War in the 1980s when we had a civil war in El Salvador and we had a civil war in Guatemala and one in Nicaragua that spilled into Honduras. What the the countries did with Mexico's involvement, because Mexico has a long tradition of being a non-aligned country in the region an intermediary in diplomatic and, and military disputes, was to come together and forge a regional plan for how to address this issue. And that led to the peace plan, which completed around 1990 and was very successful in bringing an end to decades of of civil conflict. We did something similar, uh, though less successfully, in response to the increase in the, the drug trade in the 2000s. You know, when the U.S. blockaded the flow of cocaine through the Caribbean, it all diverted to Mexico and Central America, and the U.S. Thwart, uh, sought through the Medellin Plan to promote economic development and in, in the region as a way of, of staunching the, the flow of drugs. It didn't work but it was a coordinated attempt among the countries to sit down and fashion a multi-year plan in which the responsibilities of the individual countries uh, were clear. The U.S. would put up resources. We would have you know, goals and, and, and uh, milestones that, that the individual actors were set to achieve. That model has had mixed success in the past, but at least it's had success. I'm not aware of an example where the region has faced a major threat in which the U.S. has achieved overall success through Dictop. And so what Trump's actions right now may play well politically with his base, but they're simply not addressing Uh, the fundamental cause of the exodus from Central America, which is insecurity in the region, nor are they addressing issues in Mexico about it wanting to reduce corruption in the country and removing discretion on the part of the local police and the local military and how they treat people is key to reducing corruption. So unless we recognize the, the interests of the different parties involved, what we're gonna have is this continuing standoff on the border and the potential for humanitarian casualties continuing to rise.
0: I guess we'll be watching out for what happens out of those negotiations between the US and Mexico.
1: And hoping that they come up with something better than tariffs.
0: That is all for Trade Talks. A huge thank you to Gordon Hansen, the Pacific Economic Cooperation Chair in International Economic Relations at the University of California, San Diego. Thank you for helping us through Mexican immigration, and sorry for whoever has to print your business cards.
1: Thank you also to Graciela Marquez, Mexico's current minister of the economy, for sharing her experience of the night of the tweet. Sounds like it did not come at a great time for Mexican politics. And thanks also to Colin Warren, who handles our audio. Also make sure to send us ideas and feedback. We are at email at tradetalkspodcast.com.
0: Do follow us on Twitter. I'm at Samaya Keynes.
1: And I'm at Chad Bowne.
0: And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks.
1: That's not one but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks. Because when it comes to the number of borders it takes to understand the current U.S.-Mexico crisis, two is better than one.
0: Borders are lame. No doubt.